name is Tom Van Allen. Or Danny Parker. Maybe you can decide who I am. Keep your eyes open. Nothing is as it seems. Let's get together. I'll say it first. We all love fun. And it's time for Kill Me Cash. Yeah, it's time for Kill Me Cast. Welcome to Kill Me Cast. Here is your host, Francis Rizzo III. Thanks, Bernard. Welcome to all the Valpals out there listening to a new episode of KilmerCast. I'm your host, Francis III, and I'm here to talk about the films of Val Kilmer, one of the most truly engrossing American film actors of the modern era. On this episode, we'll be checking out Kilmer's role as an informant deep in the world of meth junkies in the 2002 drama The Salton Sea. Joining us to chat about the film and Kilmer's role in it is New Horror Express and all-90s action all-the-time host, Scott Murphy. Welcome back to KilmerCast. Oh, thanks for having me back. It's a, it's a pleasure. So last we spoke, you were just settling to a new nation of New Zealand. So how is life in the land of the Kiwi? Well, uh, life here in Wellington is is doing me well. Uh, as I was explaining <laughs> off air, I, I broke my ankle a couple of months no. back, which uh, <laughs> which was not great. But um, yeah, settling in nicely, meeting new people, you know, got got a new job, and you know, like it's 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 all pretty good. It's pretty good. <laughs> So is there anything food-wise or culture-wise that you found to be a new favorite now in you and your home? I mean, a lot of it, I mean, obviously, because the New Zealand um, is like part of the Commonwealth and there's a lot of like people who are British people or people of British heritage. There's not, not a massive amount of differences in terms of uh, a lot of things. I have learned there's, um, there's a particular their fruit that, that I've, I've come to like called a, a fajua that you don't really get in the UK that they, they, they sell here, um, which is like, I think it's actually Brazilian or something, but like, they're really nice. Um, that's the only thing I can think of off the top of my head. That's like a kind of different food that I've, I've like didn't have in the UK and I've, I've, I've come to appreciate here. Yeah, I don't believe we have that here in America either. It's something I'll have to try to find maybe to see if there's a specialty store around here. I have to check that out. Now, we are here in June, and we are told here in America that the seasons are swapped on the other side of the world. So is it cold there in the summer now? Yes, that is, that is correct. So, like, we are in, like, it is, it's like the other way around. So so June is, like, your December. So, so like, we are, we are in the, we're in the middle of, in the depths of winter uh, here. Oh, it's not actually that bad, like, you know. You know, compared to a Scottish winter, it's it's fine. Um, you know, it's been it's been a bit. There's been some rain and and some storms in the last couple of days, but um, in terms of like uh, cold, uh, it's it's not very it's not been very cold. Although Wellington is one of the windiest cities in the world, so sometimes you get like really whipped by the wind. <laughs> That's got to be a bit of an adjustment for you to say to yourself, "It's June, but it's cold out." It just got to be odd for somebody who grew up with warm weather in the summer. Yeah, I think the oddest thing so far, yes, it is odd, but it's, um, it's not totally weird. Like the things that have like weirded me out the most is having Christmas in the summer. That's <laughs> very strange, like super strange. Like you know because. Christmas is kind of the same here as it is in the UK. You know, you get all the Christmas music in the in the supermarkets. You get all the Christmas trees up, all the decorations and stuff like that. But it's sunny outside, so it's so 
that's very very strange also it like really confused me with the with the clocks changing because mm. it's you know the, the like i always remember that that the old adage of like spring forward fall back so mm -hmm. i'm like so I, I you know when when the clocks change i was like thinking like oh i've put the clocks back but it's actually no you know when like when the clocks changed a couple of months back it was actually we were actually going forward yeah we were you know we were actually going back instead of instead of forward you know like the like you would normally in spring but we weren't in spring we were in autumn mm -hmm. uh, so like things like that really threw me for a loop yeah i imagine that would be pretty strange you know one of my theories is that uh and i'm pretty sure it's the same in europe as it is in america uh, where you don't go to school during the summer but uh that and that's your summer vacation is it the same in europe yeah that's that's correct you get about you get about six or seven weeks in the in this in the summer yeah and then you go back in august yeah, so my theory is that if we went to school during the summer and then head off in the winter, we would really look forward to winter. I mean, we looked forward to winter because that's when we wouldn't be in school for 12 of our first years of our lives. And uh, we'd really start to think that winter was the best time of year because most people, I think, we think, tend to think the summer's best. And I think it's just because you're trained that way, that summer is vacation. Yeah, I, I think I think so. Because like you have that, that memory of, of school. You have like this kind of six or seven week window you know from kind of the end of june to the beginning of august that's like that's your holiday time so yeah i i guess i guess that's true right <laughs> so i wonder do they go to school during the quote-unquote summer there i'm i'm honestly i'm honestly not sure i don't know a lot mm -hmm. of couples with kids um so i don't know what the school terms um are in new zealand uh, I'd be really interested to find out because they could be trained to literally like winter because that's their hot season. So I know you broke your ankle. Uh, and um, so I know you probably haven't been too busy getting out and about. Uh, but uh, obviously that wouldn't be too easy. Have you watched anything interesting though? Or um, have you seen anything interesting of late? What have I seen interesting of late? Oh, well, I've been doing a lot of... Um, I've been... Uh, you know, I, I've been doing much podcasting, so I, I've been uh, because I have a spin-off series and in, in the um, a New Horror Express where I talk about um, a guilty pleasure horror movies. So mm -hmm. I, I've watched a few of them. I, like we we recently covered recently covered the likes of uh, Cabin Fever, and we've mm -hmm. got like uh, an Urban Legend two, mm -hmm. and um, I think House of Wax comes out in July. That's a fun one. Um, and also we've, we, we, um, we've uh, kind of restarted the all 90s action um, all the time, because mm -hmm. uh, we went on a kind of hiatus with that, because I thought I was going to be too busy. Um, but we came back uh, just at the start of this month with a an uh, episode to celebrate the 25th anniversary of Con Air. Um, oh, and fun. we will be doing, um, as part of the 60th anniversary of Bond, we will be covering all the, 90, uh, the 90s Bond movies mm. um, in August. And so I recently rewatched uh, GoldenEye uh, so for, for covering that. And um, in a couple of weeks, I'll be covering uh, tomorrow, well, recording Tomorrow Never Dies for like uh, August as well. So yeah, it's been it's been a lot of uh, it's been a lot of rewatches recently. I, I feel yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that some people don't like the '90s Bonds as much as others, but those are kind of the best in many ways. I mean, I guess you you mm -hmm. kind of like uh, well where you have to be at. I guess that 
I, I like the 90s Bonds. I mean, it depends. I guess it's, well, you know, when, how old you are as well. So, because I'm, you know, I was born in 1985. I'm nearly 37. So, like, the first Bond that I remember, like, coming out, you know, in terms of, like, being excited of, like, oh, there's a new Bond was the Brosnan Bonds. Like, mm-hmm. you know, so, you know, because I'm, I'm kind of too young to remember, like, Timothy, even Timothy Dalton, because it, like, his... His, his license to kill came out in 89 when i was like you know four so like i don't rem- i don't remember thinking like seeing the trailer and being excited like oh there's a new bond but i do remember seeing the trailer for goldeneye and being like oh i should definitely see that there's a new bond movie i don't have to just keep re-watching the the connery ones or whatever you know <laughs> yeah i guess you um you were kind of realized that the ones that you grew up with are the bonds for you and um you know those who had Brosnan probably had the best because he's such a perfect Bond character. I'm really curious to see who's next. I mean, who is it now? It just went right out of my Daniel head. Daniel Craig? Yeah, yeah, Daniel Craig, which is right out of my head. Uh, I want to see what they do next uh, because it's a real opportunity to do something different with it now, I think. Yeah, I, I, I'll be fascinated to find out, particularly since, spoiler alert, they <laughs> quote-unquote killed him off. Even though... yeah well bond never really dies though right well before we dive into this movie let's go back in time gather round as we put kilmer in context so the salton sea was released in limited release in america on april 26 2002 around this time the netherlands legalized euthanasia which made them the first nation in the world to do this which to me was a big surprise that it took until 2002 for a country to allow for euthanasia I thought, you know, especially like in Europe, that it would have been kind of acceptable in some of the cultures. What do you think about that? Yeah, well, there's always been major debates about it, you know, in the UK. Um, and I know it's that it's still only a few countries, I think, that it's um, it's legal because mm-hmm. there is, I mean, there's a center called Dignitas that I know exists in, I think, Switzerland. And I think, I think so, yeah. um, you know, anybody who is, uh, you know, coming to the end of life or have like a terminal illness or whatever and wants to end their life instead of suffering the pain of a terminal illness. Um, That's, that's kind of where, that's kind of where they go. Like, um, that's kind of the most famous Mm. uh, place. I mean, obviously, it's a, it's a very complicated issue. And I, I think there's certain circumstances that I would be that I would be for it and certain circumstances that you know is more sticky and mm-hmm. you know it's, it's hard to come down hard and fast on like one one side of the line but I definitely I for me I definitely believe that they're you know having seen um grandparents like you know uh, go you know with with Alzheimer's and the dimensions and stuff like that you know, you know I can I can understand why certain people would want to to make that that decision yeah i mean personally uh put as many plugs as you can into me keep me going i want more more time uh but you know (laughs) i understand somebody who (laughs) wants that choice i mean uh i don't think you should be able to turn around to 24 hours and make that choice but you know you should have that option yeah no no there there should be there should be a lot of rules and regulations around it and there should be a lot of steps and it shouldn't be just kind of yeah, obviously, it's a big decision. You can't just be like allowed to. We can't just have like death centers that you're allowed to just walk in. You know, like <laughs> yeah. that's just, that's not what it should be at all. <laughs> yeah, I, I think we need to keep McDonald's out of this business. I don't think that'd be a good idea for us. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, 
you know, around this time, there was also the attempted coup d'etat that took place in Venezuela against President Hugo Chavez. This is a really wild time in Venezuela. Do you know about this story? Um, I don't, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure I, I know specifically about it. I do know a bit about, uh, you know, the Chavez regime and, and, and that, but like, I'm not sure I know specifically this story. Yeah, like so attempted coup well, there were big protests at the time because Chavez put himself on the board of the nationalized oil company in Venezuela. And so there's huge um, protests about this. And there were over a million people who went to the presidential palace in Venezuela. And, um, you know, the, he goes to his military and says, I want you to put into place this plan that they had used a while back. Uh, and when the military used it, it resulted in the deaths of hundreds of civilians in Venezuela. And so the military is like, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. And instead, you should resign and we will arrest you. And so, you know, they arrested him. So obviously, that's going to lead to some problems in someone in that you, uh, when you arrest the president of the country, you know. <laughs> well, the new guy they put in, uh, he comes in and within 24 hours, 24 hours, he dissolved the National Assembly, he dissolved the Supreme Court, and he vetoed the, uh, or, or voided, I mean, the national constitution of Venezuela, all in 24 hours, and then he quit. Wow. Yeah, so, like, all that in 24 hours, and then you quit? That's incredible. Yeah. I don't know, I hadn't, I hadn't heard that at all. That's, that's, that's absolutely insane. Yeah, so, you know, at that point, they release Chavez... Uh, from prison, and they put him back as president. 24 hours, it hardly seems like it was worth it uh, <laughs> to do all that. Absolutely. Jesus. Wrapping up the news at that time, Linda Lovelace, the allegedly unwilling star of the famous porno film Deep Throat, died at age 53 in a car crash, while Lisa Leftine Lopez of the popular girl group TLC also died in a car crash at the same time. Not a great time for famous females in cars. No, not at all. So let's take a look at the top of the billboard charts at the time. I, I know your musical taste, and I do not think these are going to be up your alley, but hey, let's take a look at them anyway. Um, so the first song of the chart was Ashante okay. with Foolish. This is a song I am wholly unfamiliar with. I imagine you not, have not really heard the song either. Um, no, my Ashanti knowledge is not strong. <laughs> Gonna say. So this was her first, uh, her debut single, uh, and so she previously featured on uh, big songs, but uh, this was her big break. And in the video, she was actually paired with the uh, not yet famous Terrence Howard, uh, and they together made a remake of Goodfellas to the song, which is an interesting video, but the song really does nothing to me. Just kind of repetitive, slow and yeah, dull. Right, right. No, it's not. No, it, it doesn't sound like it is up my alley after all. No, no, no. Oh, the video sounds interesting, though. Yeah. yeah, the video is definitely worth checking out. Uh, but what's weird about the song is that the word foolish never appears once in the lyrics. I always find that interesting when they name a song something and it has nothing to do with the rest of the lyrics. I wonder if thematically it was about a foolish person or something. I don't. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it definitely feels like that's what it's all about. You just usually get the word in there somewhere. Um, it's like when uh, they say the title of a movie in the movie itself, and you're like, oh, there's the title. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's always fun. I always laugh at that. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a pretty big time on the charts for Ashante because she actually had a part in the second song on the charts this, at this time, uh, which is a song, What's Love by Fat Joe. 
again, I'm not a big fan of this song. It doesn't do much for me. Uh, the hook is pretty catchy, but the rest of it doesn't doesn't interest me. No, I I don't think I know this song either. I'm a, I'm 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 not convinced it was a hit in the UK because like generally, even though like I'm like a, a metal guy and all that, you know, I am the sort of person that particularly around this time, 2002, you know, so I'd only be like like 17 or whatever uh you know i still like listen to the charts just to see if there was anything interesting and stuff like that so like mm -hmm. i was kind of broadly aware of what was happening in the charts but uh so i'm not sure this but maybe it was maybe it was maybe i'm i'm mis <laughs> well you know uh, it may have never made it over the continent that's very possible you know the charts are very different from us to europe um this song i actually is i enjoy a little more than the first song uh and that's mainly the hook. The hook is really good. She's She's got a really catchy song there. She sings really well on it. Uh, the rest of the song, though, is garbage, in my opinion. Doesn't really do much for me. Taking a listen to number three, we have J-Lo with Ain't It Funny. Uh, again, a song that I don't really recognize, and uh, I also don't understand how it became so famous as to be the number three song in America that week. Uh, it just repeats over and over again. You have this hook, and then you have Ja Rule and Cadillac Ta, another rapper I do not know. Uh, as they just rap over it, and you have J-Lo's monotone hook over and over again. Just doesn't really do much for me at all. Uh, what about you? What do you think of this song? Yeah, no, I, 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 get, what you, I get what you mean. Um, I, I think it's it's not like a Jennifer, again, it's not a Jennifer Lopez song I'm really aware of. Mm. You know, it's not like, uh, it's not like Jenny from the Block or something, which, you know, you know like one of, our, one of our huge hits. You no, know? not at all. I'd say this was a pretty weak time for rock music on the charts in America, as there were just five rock songs in the top 20. The first one being Blurry by Puddle of Mud. Uh, is that one you st stands out to you? Oh, yeah. Well, no, like, I, I didn't like... Puddle of Mud were one of those bands that I was never into. I, I didn't like that mm. whole kind of... Uh, you know, Puddle of Mud and like Nickelback and that whole kind of like new grunge scene. Mm -hmm. Like I was very much not into that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and that's what these songs were in the top twenty. It was a uh, you know Puddle of Mud, and then there was the uh, Calling with Every Wherever You Go. Oh right, yeah. And uh, then you had uh, How You Remind Me by Nickelback, uh, which was up there as well, and uh, he and yeah. Gone by Goo Goo Dolls. Uh, so it was all about that kind of uh, ballady kind of rock music, that uh, that soft rock. Nothing, yeah, you know, like that's true. That's yeah, true. nothing like we, that's, <laughs> we were looking for. Like, I, you know, it just, I mean, why? It was just one of those things where it was like Puddle of Muds were always one of those bands that was like, why would you listen to them when there's Nirvana? And you know, why would you listen to Nickelback when you know Pearl Jam exists? Like, mm -hmm. just, this just didn't make sense to me. It's like, yeah, there's other bands who do something similar much better. <laughs> 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 yeah, I don't know if in Europe or New Zealand uh, you have something we have in America called No Frills, which is a store brand of a uh, that's a lower quality version uh -huh. of the brand that everybody knows. That's what Puddle of Mud is. Uh, you know, Puddle of Mud is the generic brand of rock music. Yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> and yes, we do have them in the UK and, and uh, over here and that, yeah. <laughs> so jumping over to TV, uh, this is a very traditional time on the ratings chart in America. These are obviously the days before streaming. So the uh, big hits were ER, CSI, Friends, the stuff everybody was watching at the time. 
a few reality show pioneers mixed in, things like Survivor and The Bachelor. Uh, the only thing that really stood out to me amongst the top ten was the it was the first part of Living with the Dead, which was a TV movie with Ted Danson. And I have to imagine this was on the last of the t- genre of TV movie. Um, do you, you don't really get those anymore on TV. Um, in Europe or in New Zealand, uh, do you have that kind of thing on TV uh, that we have in, you know, in America? Or had in America, I should say? Um, so, yeah, no, I mean, sometimes you get... Not like TV movies are not quite this, uh, as much of a thing like in the UK as as they are uh, like in the US. You don't get as many kind of TV movies. You you do sometimes get like shows that are like longer, but like they're not like TV movies. They're just like so like you, you can. There's sometimes like shows that you get that sometimes uh, like. I guess like Sherlock's like a good example, mm-hmm. a more recent example um, of this kind of thing where in, they would make each episode is like a movie length. So you'd mm-hmm. only get, so the, the series is only like three episodes long or whatever. So it's like an hour and a half episode. And you, you get shows like that sometimes and like particularly kind of murder mystery shows and stuff yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. So like, but they wouldn't necessarily be classified as, tv movies like for example that another good example is like because this is one that you know my mom likes murder mysteries mm-hmm. so like um the kind of david sushi poirots mm. like they were never called tv movies but they're all of a kind of movie length and they are on tv but like <laughs> just but because you get like a series of them you would get like maybe three or four they were never necessarily classified as TV movies. Hmm. I mean, I think you had the same kind of thing in the 70s in America, which uh, we had things like Columbo and Banachek, where you have this weekly version of it, although uh, they did come out a whole lot more. And that's just, I think, the standard for American versus British television, where you get a lot more episodes in America than you do in in England. Um, You know, it's always like that for British television. And it's always like that in America. They did 24 of these things, and... Uh, so just like with the TV movies, you would do a whole run of these hour and a half, two hour TV movies, and they would always be murder mysteries. Uh, I, I, that is, I guess they they need extra time to get the mystery out there. You know, I, I don't know why they don't do comedy, but it's, TV movies are never comedy. I don't know why that is. You know, why not give a little more time to comedy? Yeah. I, I'm, not, I'm not entirely sure either but like yeah it does tend to be that that kind of like drama or like you know as we were talking about murder mysteries and yeah i mean obviously there is like that big difference between the traditional difference between uk and us television where like um most uk shows would be like a series would be six to ten episodes whereas um you know like the 24 thing although that that's changed now with streaming that's like now everything is like 13 episodes like everywhere <laughs> yeah i guess with streaming now streaming series are essentially just tv movies played out on streaming i mean you get these six hour uh, you know six episode one hour episodes it's basically you know your miniseries spread out amongst a bunch of episodes so i mean um <laughs> yeah that's that's the way it works now you just call them streaming movies instead of tv movies mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> so as I mentioned, the uh, Salton Sea got a limited release in the U.S., uh, so it was nowhere near the top of the box office chart. came in 33rd with just $232,000 in its first week in theaters. That put it way behind the first movie, 
which was the Scorpion King, which earned nearly $22 million in its second week, well ahead of the Samuel L. Jackson-Ben Affleck movie Changing Times, which took in $11 million in its third week in theaters. So, uh, did you see either of these two movies? Yes. I I mean, remember is, is a strong word, but I have definitely... <laughs> I have definitely seen both. Um, I have very vague memories of Changing Lanes. And my one big memory of um, The Scorpion King is because I remember it. I was like, uh, it's so hilarious that it's always stuck in my brain. There is a moment in The Scorpion King hmm. where uh, the rock is shot by an arrow. And I think, like, this is what happens in my memory. He's shot by an arrow, and he pulls the arrow out of his chest and then shoots the arrow back. And I was like, that is that is movie magic right there. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Pretty badass. Uh, did you watch the Black Adam uh, trailer? Um, I've, not, I've not seen it yet, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to watch it probably uh, this weekend at some point. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was pretty awesome. I'm um, actually really excited for that movie now, even though I'm not a big DC guy, but that looks great. Ah, uh, cool. <laughs> so these two were joined by the Sandra Bullock thriller Murder by Numbers, which was the number three returning champion that week, picking up $8 million in its third week. And they all outpaced the two new wide releases that week, which included the Friday the 13th sequel, Jason X. I'm sure you're well acquainted with Jason X. Uh, <laughs> that's a fun one. Oh, we covered it on the Guilty Pleasures series. It was a great episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was fun. Uh, and there's also Life or Something Like It, which is a pretty odd little film. Uh, it's a rom- sort of a romantic comedy uh, that was starring Angelina Jolie. Uh, do you know about this movie, Life or Something Like It? Yes. Um, again, I I remember nothing about it apart from... Angelina Jolie has platinum blonde hair in it. <laughs> like, yes, yes like, she does. Like, yeah. really? <laughs> so I remember that. <laughs> yeah, so the uh, concept of this film is kind of insane because uh, the plot involves a TV reporter who is doing this fluff piece on a psychic homeless man, uh, and he's played by Tony Shalhoub, and he tells her she's going to die in seven days, and then she really evaluates her whole life. Um, kind of weird. Um, you know, it's a strange concept for a movie, but I guess back then, Angelina Jolie could basically do anything and people would watch it. Uh, I don't think that's the case really anymore, but, you know, it, it looks kind of interesting and I kind of want to watch it. I, <laughs> uh, I don't think I've ever seen it, but, um, you know, the pairing of Angelina Jolie and Tony Shalhoub sounds like fun. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I think, like, I remember in, in university, I think I have seen it. Because, like, I've seen, like, they're not necessarily, it's not necessarily the kind of film that's uh, up my alley. But um, when I was in uni, um, I had a, uh, I had a flat and I, I had a flatmate, um, like, a, like a female flatmate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we kind of did swaps of, like, sometimes I'd force her to watch action movies. <laughs> sometimes she would watch, force me to watch, like, romantic comedies. So, so I've seen, like, all these kind of early, mid-2000 romantic comedies, like, just married how to lose a guy in 10 days serendipity you know like all these (laughs) yeah the rest of the chart featured the uh, baseball drama the rookie uh also the first ice age movie which passed 165 million dollars i kind of forgot how successful the ice age movies were because i kind of think of them as second level animation uh but they were huge 
Yeah, they were big movies, man. And the first one's really good. I, I think I know there's like a few of them now, so I don't. I I I've seen the first and second one. I don't. I think there's like maybe four or something. I think there now. might be five. I'm not sure, but um, five. Okay, cool. I'm behind. But anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, they're like, like you say, I feel like they're kind of second tier. Like they're mm. like good movies, but they're not like great movies. But like. Kind of one of those ones if they're on TV or whatever, you know, they're fun to kind of just like kind of be like, yeah, this is okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they uh, definitely have a really good cast as well. Um, also in the top ten was the David Fincher tense film Panic Room, uh, the military legal thriller High Crimes, and then Cameron Diaz and The Sweetest Thing. A real mix of movies at the box office that week. Uh, unlike how it is now, which is basically superheroes. I guess so. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> At the other end of the chart, um, wrapping up their box office runs at number 74 and 75, were a couple of gems in The Brotherhood of the Wolf and Mulholland Drive. Um, you know, at least uh, with uh, some places in America, you go see these two movies still. I love Brotherhood of the Wolf. It's one of my favorite little action films there. Have you seen Brotherhood of the Wolf? Yes. I, I like, yeah, that, that's one of those movies that um, people, if people are kind of saying, like, oh, what's like an underrated movie that I can, like, watch or like i it's one of those movies i can recommend to people well a specific type of person i guess because <laughs> like generally I, I like i give them the kind of kind of thing of like right so it's a monster movie mm-hmm. mixed with a period drama <laughs> yep. mixed with a martial art movie <laughs> and i was like if you're like all those ingredients you're gonna love this film oh, but yeah. if, you know if you don't you don't. You can just leave it alone. But no, it's a, it's a great movie, and Mark Dacascos kicks ass in it. And oh, yeah, absolutely. I think it's great. Yeah, I love that movie. Uh, my wife bought it for me on Blu-ray uh, for Christmas, and I've watched it many times since. So uh, I highly recommend it to everybody. So we're gonna take a little break right now, and then we'll be right back to talk about the Salt and the Sea. <laughs> Welcome back to KilmerCast. Let's get into this film. So, The Salt and Sea was written by Tony Gayton. This is his debut as a feature writer, although he only really wrote it originally as a spec script in order to get some work as a writer because he never expected it to actually be made, which you may be able to tell when you uh, watch it because there's stuff in here where you're like, well, this doesn't really belong in a movie. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, you know, we mentioned Murder by Numbers earlier, which is also in the top 10 this week, also by Tony Gayton. So it was a great time to be Tony Gayton. Yeah, yeah, I read that as well. <laughs> <laughs> he would go on to write the action film Faster, which starred Dwayne Johnson. And uh, he created the AMC series Hell on Wheels, which centered around the building of the U.S. Intercontinental Railroad System, uh, which ran four seasons on AMC. So good for him. I mean, keeping busy in this industry for a couple of decades is... Uh, that's a great job. You can't argue with that. Yeah, well, absolutely is, and um, that's kind of weird that he, he wrote faster as well. That's mm-hmm. kind of this. It feels like this episode's also sponsored by The Rock. <laughs> yeah, this is your new spinoff series, all Dwayne Johnson all the time now. So, uh, welcome aboard. <laughs> <laughs> so, The Sultan Sea was directed by DJ Caruso. He was also making his feature film debut with this movie, which is kind of weird to have a studio film with two first-timers behind it, um, you know, writing and directing on this one. Uh, He, though, had an extensive career writing television, so he's not exactly a rookie at this. He directed Dark Angel, Smallville, VR5, and then he moved into films, and so he's done films like uh, Suburbia, the 
uh, Angelina Jolie film Taking Lies, where she was a serial killer. Uh, I think she was a serial killer. Oops, spoiler alert. Uh, and then he did uh, the films uh, Disturbia and Eagle Eye. Did you watch either of those? Yes, that's the uh, that's the only other two DJ Caruso films I've I've actually seen, and um, kind of it seems like a kind of like a pattern uh, in terms of I, I'm sure we'll get into it, but like uh, <laughs> DJ Caruso films often seem to be derivative but fun <laughs> because like yes. you know because <laughs> you know like because uh, Disturbia is kind of like teen movie Rear Window, and then eagle eyes kind of like kind of like enemy of the state's younger brother <laughs> yeah. yeah absolutely that's that's a great way to put it which really ties into this movie as well and we'll get into that about how derivative this film is um you know also in recent years he's had a little lower profile although he did team up with vin diesel when he worked on the third xxx movie uh, return of Kent xander cage so um maybe he's on his way back up again you know there are peaks and valleys to people's mm-hmm. careers when it comes to directing yeah, although I did see, I was kind of looking into it, and the thing that disappointed me because, like, I was like, they're not amazing films, but I was mm-hmm. like, I like this film. I quite like Disturbia. I quite like Eagle Eye. So mm-hmm. I was like, oh yeah, you know, maybe he isn't on his way back up. And then I kind of looked at his credits, and his most recent credit was like a horror movie that was made by the Daily Wire. Oh um, no, the Daily Wire, which is, yeah, which is um, as. I'm sure many listeners will know Daily Wire, which is owned by alt-right nutbag uh, Ben Shapiro. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, like... <laughs> Maybe the uh, valley's a little deeper than we thought. <laughs> <laughs> so for those of you who don't know what the Salton Sea is, it actually is a real place. Um, it was It's the largest lake in the state of California. Uh, at the time, back in the 50s, uh, 60s, I believe, it was a big vacation destination. Um, just really beautiful, uh, nice place. You'd go there, you'd visit, you'd swim. But over the years, because of uh, the use of pesticides in the agricultural uh, communities around it, uh, it's just been completely destroyed. And now it's you know just incredibly polluted to the point where now it's actually too dangerous to be near the lake, no less in the lake. Um, I mean, it's mm-hmm. you do not swim there anymore. Sad thing is that all this could have been avoided. Um, you know, just by taking the steps to solve the problem, which I think is a metaphor for this movie uh, in, in a way, because, you know, you have the destruction of this once beautiful place, um, and that all ties into Danny Parker, who is the star of the show here, uh, who is, you know, he's destroyed by his addiction to meth, uh, which for reasons we'll eventually learn. I mean, there are reasons he took his big slide down into addiction, but Parker is a heavily tattooed, heavily bejeweled, I mean... He's the ultimate bro dude in this movie. Oh, uh, I, I, yeah, I did, I did want to mention that, like, cause, um, so for people who have not seen the movie, uh, Danny Parker, as played by Val Kilmer, is like everything. He is like everything that white dudes thought was cool twenty years ago. He's got like. <laughs> He's got he's got that he's got that sleeveless cut off muscle vest. Mm-hmm. He's got skull rings. He's got leather trousers. He's got a full hawk. It's just every like every mm-hmm. the, down to the down to the finest thing. Even like the leather jackets he wears, the beanie no. hats he wears. Everything is just like everybody. What what by everybody I mean like white young white men um <laughs> thought that was the coolest thing in the world in 2002 
So <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he's basically a walking Ed Hardy shirt here. Yeah. <laughs> so as we see him here, Val Kilmer is Danny Parker. Um, you know, at this point, uh, he, we haven't seen him in a while. So the last time he, we saw him in a movie was in Red Planet and a small cameo in Pollock. And that's kind of like the start of a period where his A-list status was on the wane. Uh, you know, he was taking a lot of smaller films, a lot of smaller roles. And, I mean, I wondered if you think he thought he saw this coming with Salt and Sea, or do you think this was going to be a big hit? At, since it is a studio film, it's a big studio film, uh, and I th- with Castle Rock and Warner Brothers behind it. So the weird thing about this film is I didn't realize that it was like a studio film. Mm. Like, because I, like, Im- I kind of assumed that this was like like an indie picture that was made for like a few million. So mm-hmm. like when I was looking up like the Wikipedia and the, the IMDb and stuff like that, when I saw that it was like a, a studio picture and it was made for a budget of $18 million, <laughs> yep. I was like, wow, that is, I, 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 I just, I, because like I say, because I knew it was like DJ Caruso's first film. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I, I, so I knew that it was, um, uh, th- yeah, it was like these kind of people who had, hadn't had much experience and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, and I, because it, it has that grungy look as well, I thought like it's just like, oh, yeah, okay, okay. I, I like it was an indie picture back in oh, the yeah. day. But so I was really surprised, yeah, looking up the details uh, for this film to, to find out what kind of budget it actually had. And I think, as we'll surely discuss, I, a lot of the budget must have gone on them casting even the smallest roles <laughs> with really famous faces for no apparent reason. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Definitely. I do think, like you said, it desperately wants to be an indie film. Uh, I mean, it is dying to be an indie film in the worst way possible. Uh, I mean, that's the thing that amazed me about this film is that, yeah. uh, you know... I was trying to describe this film to somebody um, just just yesterday because i was telling them about like appearing on this episode and i was like this is it's like a weird mixture of like everything from the kind of mid to late 90s early 2000s like stuck in a blender Mm -hmm. it's just like it's got like a part of it's got a bit of pulp fiction it's got a bit of natural born killers it's got a bit of memento it's got a bit of like train spotting. It's yep. got a bit of like go. It's got <laughs> a little bit of kind of lynch, kind of that kind of lost highway lynch, and and like every, just just everything. It's just trying to do mementos in there. Just like it, there's so many parts. Uh, yeah. Bit of requiem for a dream, and it's like I'm going to try and be all these films at once, and <laughs> it's kind of a mess, but it's also kind of glorious. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's the thing that amazes me about this film is that it does pull from so many, uh, you know, sources and, and, air, and areas. And though I guess, it, you know, it came out around 2002, uh, but it just feels so 90s. Um, you know, there's even a Chemical Brothers song in this movie. And I was like, that is the most 90s thing you could do. Uh, like you said, it looks like it was shot by Aronofsky. It looks like a film by Tarantino. It looks like a film by Boyle. Um, but, like, all these different parts... And none of it goes together cleanly. It's just like, hey, let's see this scene along the way. (laughs) You know, we got this scene that happens, that scene that happens. And like you said, it is a glorious mess. So we get to meet Danny Parker. 
How we get to meet Danny Parker, I think, is really interesting because the film opens with these nouveau font credits, uh, which are totally out of character for the film, and some jazz music that I did not expect. And Danny's playing the trumpet in a room that's on fire. And he's doing direct address to the audience, talking about his different personalities. What did you think when you first saw this movie like this? Well, again, I, uh, I've kind of just tried to describe the many kind of influences they've stuck in a blender here. But I suppose one of the things I didn't mention was it's also trying to very hard to be like a kind of noirish type film. Mm, yeah, definitely. And uh, the, so, we, yeah, we get like this, this kind of the kind of soulful jazz trumpeting. And you know he's leaning against this wall. Um, we we don't we don't understand the context of it until later on in the film. But like and and you said there, it's like trying very hard to be like an indie film. And I think it really is here. And uh, particularly, I think a lot of not a lot of thought has been put into the story, mm. but a lot of thought has been put into the visuals. Oh yeah, and. Uh, and it is like it's a great shot because it's it's that very kind of indie movie kind of cool mm. where he, he's in this room on fire, but the the flames are those kind of very beautiful, artful flames that are kind of mm -hmm. dancing around him. So it's, it's very kind of like it's it's almost like the movie is like grabbing you by the, by the collar of your shirt and being like, <laughs> "This is art," you know. <laughs> like, <laughs> Oh, absolutely. I mean, I definitely can appreciate that Caruso goes for it like this. Uh, and it feels like there's nothing that he won't do in this movie. And you right after this scene that's on fire, I've got a scene where I, you know, it's just like, wow, total change. Because we get this documentary style history of methamphetamines that's totally mismatched to the, what we just watched. You know, uh, there's a scene where um, we go to pre-World War to Japan. Uh, there's some meth labs and, and tweakers of the 2000s. All this stuff is blending together, and I'm like, I was actually really excited at this point because I'm like, wow, this movie seems like it is willing to do just about anything to entertain me. Yeah, that's true, because, like, that's, I mean, again, that's more like the kind of, um, the kind of, kind of quick cut editing and that, that kind of, uh, that kind of condensed history of, of meth does, does seem like from like one of those like uh one of those drug drug movies like requiem for a dream or like or like train spotting or mm -hmm. or whatever you know um where we get this little montage which is yeah it it, it is quite a, as as much as and again like i have that kind of push pull because i'm like that montage is really fun to watch mm. and it's kind of like oh that's 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 great that's really entertaining but also at the same time it feels disconcerting because this opening is very much like a kind of neo-noir you know it's like you know this movie is setting up to be like you know one of those like 80s type noir films like yeah. you know something like body heat or something you, you know what i mean mm -hmm. so you get from there and then you go to like oh this is very too, late 90s 2000s uh you know kind of mashup in that in that kind of uh, that particular slick editing style and you know we're doing quippy dialogue and you know and we and and again as a narrator like Danny Parker kind of flips from kind of being this kind of soulful like lost soul of like who am I who is my real identity mm. to this kind of 
kind of quippy Tarantino style dialogue that we're getting now. Mm -hmm. So even even it's kind of even schizophrenic on the kind of narration level as well. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. This film doesn't know what to do with tone because they cannot keep things moving from scene to scene. Uh, I mean, right because right after this we go into a scene where Danny and his buddy Jimmy the Finn, uh, who's played by Peter Sarsgaard, they go to see a dealer named Bobby, and this is a scene that uh, gets even more stranger, more bizarre. And, you know, they go into this guy's place, and underneath the mattress, there's a woman kicking and screaming that he's holding down, and he's holding them at harpoon point. I mean, every element of the scene seems like it was engineered to be wacky, to be over-the-top and bizarre. I mean, there's nothing like this. And, unfortunately, none of this matters to the story, because shortly after this, uh, spoiler alert, Bobby dies. I think there's two scenes later, and there's no reference or mention or effect of this guy on anything else in the plot or anything else in the movie, for that matter. They just create this weird tone, drop it in, and then move on to another tone, and then just ignore it. Yeah, I think like this is uh, one of... Bobby's kind of scene is like one of the more kind of... There's a couple of moments that I would describe as being quite Lynchian, mm-hmm. and this is kind of one of them of like... He's, he's, he's weird in like many ways. He seems kind of out of it. He's like pointing this harpoon gun at him, um, but at first he's not pointing the harpoon gun at them. He's kind of mm. pointing the harpoon gun kind of randomly, like he's blind, even though he's not blind, and he, you know can't <laughs> yeah. keep eye contact and stuff like. That. And you, you've got this this woman who's trapped in between the mattress, which, like, I feel that like uh, Val's character, you know, Danny Parker and uh, Jimmy the Finn, uh, the Peter Sarsgaard's character like should can be more concerned about like the only like <laughs> like jimmy the finn only kind of interjects when he starts like beating the bed and he's like mm. oh kind of lay off her but even then his protests are kind of minimal so like we've you know like and their reaction to it is hilarious because they don't have a reaction to no. it like if you walk into a room and there's like a woman like legs flailing and she's like caught between the matches you, you probably ask questions um <laughs> you know, so, yeah. <laughs> or, or you know or attempt to interject in some way yeah, but they kind uh, of just ignore it. no no it's so it's and again i i think there's it's one of the many scenes in the movie that it's kind of wacky for for wacky sake you know it's just like oh this would be kind of fun to watch mm-hmm. yeah and i mean especially because like i said he dies a moment later basically like two scenes and i believe uh you know, that just, just done. Yes, he commits suicide. He like, yeah, yeah. Well, see, that's the thing, though. Um, did he actually commit suicide? Because I couldn't exactly tell myself. Uh, because, you know, there's a scene with the cops, and there's a lot of blood. And there's shots of this woman, who I believe is the woman who is under uh-huh. the bed. And um, she's up on the roof. And I thought maybe there was a shootout with the cops, or that he, like you said, like, jumped. Um, and I wasn't quite sure. And there's never anything said. And again, it's never mentioned again. So... Um, it has no effect on this film or the plot. So what's the point of this scene? Yep. There, it's one of... it. I don't think there is a point to this scene. Other, like, <laughs> there, there's a couple of moments in the movie that I'm like, oh, this has just been put in here because they thought it was like a fun thing that they could do rather than it would affect the plot. Because there, there mm. is... A bunch of scenes that you could take out to the movie with with no effect oh, yeah. on the overall story. This this being this very much being one of them. I think the only reason story wise why this is in the plot is that 
this introduces that Danny Parker is a police informant. Hmm. That I think that's the only connective tissue to to the the main plot um, because it's, so I mean there's probably other ways we could have got there, but like yeah. yeah, I think that's why why it's there. Yeah, I'm willing to buy it. I accept that <laughs> if that's what you say, but. Um... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you know, you mentioned a lot of the drug films of the '90s, like Train Spotting and Go, and all those. Yeah. I don't think those films really glamorize drug use in any way. But um, the meth use in this film is kind of weird for a drug that is. I mean, a drug that's so destructive to the person who uses it, with the physical damage and that's well known about meth, and the mental damage that obviously occurs. I feel like this movie treats meth use like a hobby, like a mm-hmm. cute little hobby. I mean, what did you think of the world of meth that we see in this movie? Well, I, the funny thing about this, because like, I read about it and I, I watched some stuff. I watched the, like a brief making off and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And like the actors really did like go kind of above and beyond. Um, you know, Val spent time with cops dealing mm-hmm. with meth addicts and uh, Peter Sarsgaard um, w- was at a rehab center and he did some research and i think uh, deborah cara unger as, as well did kind of the same thing and and uh, vincent d'onofrio as well he, you know he he like spent time you know kind of researching drug dealers and stuff like that so <laughs> people did like the research and stuff but no it is quite strange the drug use because i think you do in jimmy the thin see the destructiveness of drugs and see this these kind of um like how it affects his life and mm. how it it's kind of he's a burner and stuff like that. In terms of like, conf- in terms of the central character, in terms of Danny Parker, I think it gets confusing mm-hmm. because you're not entirely sure how much, how often he's taken it because mm. sometimes he's presented as if he's gone like, you know fully into it mm-hmm. and he's just like one of the you know what they call tweakers yeah uh and you know he's just itching for his his next uh, hit kind of thing mm-hmm. but then there's other moments where you're like oh has he just been pretending to take it or whatever because mm-hmm. like he's shown to have like superhuman powers of observation <laughs> And this is shown in the Bobby scene where he's like, oh, he had this amount of drugs. He had this amount of guns in the corner. I think there was a little girl in the bathroom. And it's like, it's like, you know, if this guy is like super deep into drugs, would he, you know, and he's twitching and he's like, you know, uh, you know, can hardly stay still and all that. Would, would he have like these superpowers of observation? No, I don't think so. Uh, it seems doubtful. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's a point where he just he stops using, and there's no detox of any kind at all. <laughs> he just lets go of it. He just yeah. lets go. Yeah. I mean, I'm pretty sure that if you're a regular user of meth, it does not work that way. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It doesn't go to rehab. There's there's nothing because you know. But that's that's just the kind of superhuman guy that val is that he can just he can just he can have that stuff and then he can just be like you know what i'm done <laughs> just gonna walk away from it now well you know we should talk a bit about the use of voiceover in this film because you know when i studied film uh you know i kept reading and being told that uh the use of voiceover is a crutch because um it usually use it when you can't get across visually or through character 
uh, what you want to tell the person who's watching the movie. And this movie uses voiceover a ton. And I can't argue that isn't the case here because, you know, uh, it's there a lot. Uh, and I get it because you have Kilmer and his voice has gravitas to it. I mean, I, he makes it work, but what do you think? Do you think it's a help or a hindrance to the film? Because it feels like it's trying to do more than the acting and the film can do uh, in the actual telling of the story. A lot of it is put onto so. the voiceover. I mean, the, the thing about... I know that the people who do like screenwriting classes and stuff like that are always kind of dead against narration. And, mm. and I, I, my kind of always thought is that you know, narration can work in terms of adding extra kind of color and context. You know, there's obviously famous mm -hmm. examples of like movies that have narration, like uh, mm -hmm. Goodfellas or oh, yeah. Fight Club, you know, like that, that are, are really good. But um, yeah, I, I get what you mean. Some of the kind of heavy lifting kind of storytelling wise is kind of left in the narration um, to kind of fill in the gaps. Yeah, and it kind of works, uh, you know, Mike. But he is also an unreliable narrator because of his multiple personalities, especially when he's high on meth. I don't know if that makes sense to have him tell us most of the stories when you're like, wait, is this true? Is this, or is this a dream? A drug haze? Or what? What is happening at the moment? Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure on that. Like, and I'm also not sure on that in the sense that, you know, why I was just talking about of, like, what, Danny Parker's actual drug use was because mm -hmm. obviously we, we find out he's kind of like undercover amongst these these drug addicts mm -hmm. or and you know he he his previous life as Tom Van Allen mm -hmm. and it's so I'm just it, it, like from that point I'm not sure how reliable the narration is because maybe the, the narration is pretty reliable because maybe he's kind of faking more drug use than he's actually having but mm -hmm. then there's like i say it's confusing because other times like at the start of the movie he does seem like properly strung out yeah. but then for the rest of the movie he doesn't seem he doesn't really seem strung out to that extent at any other part in the movie than that very first scene where like he there he's at that party that mm -hmm. has been going on for three or four days as he keeps kind of mentioning that like is it three is it four you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because uh that comes up a couple of times where he can't keep details straight and he's not quite sure on what the details are on things however i don't want to jump too far ahead uh but this movie is based around a massively complex plan that he has to you know pull off uh that's asking <laughs> a lot of somebody who can't remember the difference between numbers and days so i think like he has to pull a lot of things to line up in a in a row, and I don't think he could pull that off if he's uh, not sure about eight or nine or three or four. Maybe not. Uh, you know, maybe maybe a bit right. Yes, for for somebody who's created this massively convoluted uh, like secret identity mm. and has to pull in all these different characters and has to get all the chips lined up in a row, it, it does seem. A bit far-fetched. <laughs> <laughs> well, as you mentioned, Danny is working for the cops. He's an informant for them, and he's trying to help them bust you know, meth dealers. Uh, and this has created a problem because he's in a bit of trouble with the Colombians, who are after him because of his involvement in a drug bust. And then we also meet his uh, damsel-in-distress neighbor, Colette, who's played by, as you mentioned, Deborah Kara Unger. Now, 
I don't think I'm really very familiar with her. And I guess she has had a few key roles in the 90s and the early 2000s. She was in Silent Hill and uh, The Game and White Noise. But she hasn't been had a lot of work in big films lately. What's your take on her? Um, well, I mean, generally, the things I've seen her in, I think she's good in. But I don't think I've seen her in a massive amount. I mean, I've you know, the three movies you've mentioned, you threw out there, I've seen her in that. And um, if I remember correctly, she's also in Crash, right? Hmm. That's correct. Uh, maybe. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a big cast in that one. Yeah, no, I like it. It's like so many people in Crash. I just, I just want to make sure I haven't made that up. Possibly I have. <laughs> <laughs> See, now you're the unreliable narrator. <laughs> oh, no. Is it three? Is it four? Who knows? <laughs> oh, yeah, she is in Crash. Oh, good. She's also in Highlander 3, the sorcerer, but I don't remember her in that. Um, <laughs> but no, I was. It, it turns out I am a reliable narrator after all. <laughs> I'm glad for that. <laughs> So we meet Colette and we find out another twist because Danny keeps another identity, which he, we actually already met, uh, which is in the trunk of his tr- uh, with his trumpet, uh, which was explained by a Kilmer voiceover where he says, my name is Tom Van Allen, a trumpet player. And so this is his real identity of Tom, yeah. that he oddly cosplays as him, I guess, to connect to remember his past. Is that what's going on here, do you think? Yes, to um it's a funny thing because like i was at work and we were uh had this uh seminar to do with like stress management and stuff Mm -hmm. like that and this guy was who's hosting it was like um talking about he was like a former police negotiator or or like you know yeah you know uh, you know for people uh, uh that kind of those kind of negotiation situations sure. and uh he was talking about like undercover cops and then like he was saying that a lot of undercover cops what they do is uh, to kind of keep their identities their undercover identity their real identity separate is they'll have like a piece of like clothing whether it be like a jacket or a hat or something um and then once they come back home to their real home they like hang that up hmm like taking off that identity and then say their real name out loud hmm. uh to to kind of to, to kind of keep that separation so like that's like a little detail that actually uh rang true to me because hmm. like having recently heard that of like this is like a practice that like undercover cops have of uh yeah to, to keep their undercover identity and their real identity uh separate so this movie is basically a documentary that you're telling me it's true life <laughs> in this particular regard i think so although uh in in the kind of more wacky thing it's like there was a part of me that was thinking because like after like we see him like open the trunk uh with the the tom van allen stuff and he gets in the tom van allen gear he's playing the trumpet and stuff like that mm. he goes for a shower mm. and then we see that the tattoos he has um are are like like fake and and they you know they run off yeah. and stuff like that so like my thought was like what time does he get up in the morning <laughs> to put those tattoos on every day <laughs> <laughs> yeah and how do you do that back one 
yeah like like the like the salt and sea on the lower back you know how does he <laughs> manage to like in the mirror uh just like writing out the so and he you know doing it in the exact same way every morning i was like <laughs> wow that's gotta be a process that's gotta be oh, like yeah. two to three he must get up at like four o'clock in the morning to like meet <laughs> yeah that, that's my curiosity about this film is how do you do those back tattoos so we get this little flashback to him at the uh, beach of the titular Salton Sea, and it's pretty clear to us that there's a woman in his life that's no longer in the picture. Uh, what exactly happened, we don't quite know, but she's definitely not there. But you kind of knew what was happening at this point, right? You knew what the deal was with her. Yes, because of the way it's presented and the way it's very clearly a flashback, and because his um, former wife kind of constantly appears to us in this kind of ethereal light. We know that this character is dead and he is on some sort of path of vengeance. We just don't quite know what the path of vengeance is yet. Mm. So the film starts piling up the complications for Danny, and sometimes it feels like it's just there to set up a moment or a twist later on, which I thought was uh, both odd and kind of engaging because... Like, yeah, you want things to make sense, but it's interesting to see just things that are kind of interesting. So you've got Colette's abusive boyfriend who's played against type by Luis Guzman, uh, which I'm always happy to see Luis Guzman in a movie, even though I don't like the character he's playing here. I do like to see Luis. And then there's this young gun salesman who has a very hard sales style. I love this scene, even though it's kind of pointless for the most part in this Again, film. Again, it is one of those, it's like the the history of mess montage where i'm like i i'm i am enjoying this i'm glad it exists it makes no sense that it's here <laughs> and um, yeah there this is one of the scenes that makes the least sense mm -hmm. there's another scene i think makes that it makes even less sense that uh, <laughs> that i'm sure we can get to yes, but um, yes, we will. <laughs> but this character it's like again much like bobby uh he he can't keep eye contact he kind of he, he speaks in this weird kind of way and yeah he's he's just a very strange character mm. uh and then he just tells us a lot about guns and he just has like <laughs> he has and it's, it's very funny as well because like often when you see uh like a scene with like an arms dealer or whatever like he'll you know go to the back and then he'll bring out a gun and be like and he'll describe this gun but it's like this scene is like so comically over the top where mm. this guy just has like a massive long table <laughs> just completely covered with every gun you can imagine and you're just like it this doesn't seem like, uh, this doesn't seem like a sensible idea for an arms dealer <laughs> no, really for in the first place. Like, yeah, I, I take it none of these guns are loaded. I certainly hope not. <laughs> <laughs> and he's willing to negotiate, which is a great thing. He's not uh, stuck in his uh, pricing. He can, He's willing to bring it down a bit, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a very friendly arms dealer. He's, you know, like, um, <laughs> for somebody in that business... <laughs> Like I said, that's the thing about this movie. All the criminals in this movie are quirky. Not for the most part, you know, like, you know, evil, except for maybe Pooh Bear. And we'll talk about more of that when we get there. But most of the criminals in this movie are just, like, a little weird. 
Uh, they, you know, until they commit murder, of course. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. So now that we know Danny's story, uh, we really get the plot rolling in this film because Danny is visited by Bubba, who's looking to buy drugs through Danny. Bubba is the always great B.D. Wong. Always awesome. i love to see him in a movie. Uh, however, in this film, he's dealing in this aggressive Texas accent uh, in a way that, uh, I mean, I can only view it as somewhat racist. Um, it's just like, you know, can you imagine a Chinese cowboy? Uh, get right out of town. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, and I, I, that's, that's, that's very true. I think like I've... Well, I mean, because otherwise, what's the point? Yeah, 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 yeah. I guess the... Hmm. Yeah. I was just kind of caught up with like B.D. Wong's like aggressive Texan accent, like you were saying, <laughs> you know? Uh, it, it was just, it was just very funny to... Because it's like... Mm -hmm. The accent that B.D. Wong does in this movie is not like a Texan accent. It's like if you ask a child to do, a you know, like if you, <laughs> a child who has maybe watched a couple of Westerns, like, can you do a Texan accent? I sure can. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, mm. <laughs> don't think people actually speak like that, but you know. It's <laughs> well, either way, I enjoy it because it's B.D. Wong. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's always fun to watch. <laughs> yeah, I'm willing to let it slide. Uh, so all this leads to Danny meeting Pooh Bear, who is this big-time meth dealer, and he's played by Vincent D'Onofrio. Yet another addition to his yes, array of memorable characters, Vincent D'Onofrio always seems to be given us all no matter what he plays, and I'd say that Pooh Bear is easily the most original, interesting part of this film. What's your take on this guy? Yes, I, I would say so. And I would say that um, for people who have not seen the movie and are aware of Vincent D'Onofrio as an actor, and why wouldn't you be aware of Vincent D'Onofrio as an actor? <laughs> this is a character that is weird even by Vincent D'Onofrio standards. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, first of all, you know, uh, he does not have a nose. Uh, he snorted up so much meth into his nose that his nose disintegrated, and now he has this prosthetic nose to cover up this hole in his face. And as a result, he has this, you know, weird like uh, breathing and speaking um, me method that, uh, you know, you know what? <laughs> I have to ask you: Did you think we were going to see the hole? Yes, I kind of guessed. I kind of assumed that <laughs> at some point uh, we would see the kind of. Yeah, you know, what is underneath the, the little bit of plastic. But mm -hmm. like listening to Vincent D'Onofrio talk about this role is absolutely mm -hmm. fascinating because oh, yeah. like again, he did it super method, you know, like he did a lot of research. He also he gained forty five pounds. Mm -hmm. Um he gave himself like a weird a deliberately weird tan um mm -hmm. that was like un uneven so to kind of make the character more memorable and then he uh he practiced because he had this fake nose he practiced only breathing through his mouth which is why it kind of sounds weird as well mm -hmm. and then he came up with the 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 nose squeak that happens <laughs> um every so often as well at certain points um so he really put a lot of detail and effort into this character mm -hmm. and it's very much worth it because oh, yeah. 
he is, he absolutely steals the show every time he appears on screen. <laughs> yeah, I did not think they were going to show us the whole, so I was not exactly ready for when it came out. Uh, oof. Uh, I was like, no, 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 that's the hole, the whole hole right there. Should we maybe discuss uh, like the the scene where where they do show us the hole because that is probably one of the one of the weirdest scenes. Not not in terms of like it being like disconnected to the rest of the film, like some scenes are, but just one of the weirdest scenes you can see in a film. Where, um... <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, the whole the whole scene with Pooh Bear is crazy because you know, like we start out by meeting him. Uh, we find out one of his hobbies where he's recreating the JFK assassination using a remote controlled car, and it's you know kind of like right. with pigeons. Yeah, uh, <laughs> pigeons, yeah. And, uh, like, I don't understand, like, you know, uh, this is, again, disconnected from the rest of the movie. There's no real need for this moment, but, you know, it's the greatest thing yeah. about this scene. Uh, it gives you that great Jimmy moment with Jimmy the Finn, because Jimmy the Finn admits he does not know who JFK is. Yeah. And then later, Danny doesn't make fun of him because of it, and that is just lovely. You know, that is that connection between the two. I thought it was really good. It created that nutshell of Jimmy right there. Being ignorant, hoping nobody notices, and hoping nobody's going to make fun of him. And, uh, you know, because of it, that's what's going to happen when he reveals his true self. And I thought that was just great. Yeah, I I think that, like, pretty much everything to do with, like, Danny and Jimmy's relationship is actually done really quite well. You know... Mm -hmm. Peter Sarsgaard's performance um, as this kind of guy who is just super open, super heart on his sleeve, just wants everybody to love him, but mm. you know, is kind of scared of being humiliated or, or bullied because, like, he's very uneducated and he doesn't know a lot. And um, you know, he even thinks Danny is like posh and clever because he used the word dire in a sentence. <laughs> yeah. You know, like. Um, but yes, but everything about the relationship is, is, is really quite touching and you really, you don't want any harm to come to, to Jimmy and you really, you know, buy them as friends as well. Mm -hmm. So I think it is probably one of the strongest aspects of the movie all around. Oh yeah, I would definitely agree. And later on, we'll talk about a scene where the two of them, that's just heartbreaking in this film, um, that otherwise is, you know pretty wacky and insane there's actually heartbreaking moments later on um you know right here in this weird old film um and so no yeah because like a lot of the film is you know done in that kind of like in the tarantino-esque style so it's kind of you know a lot of the violence and a lot of the insanity in the movie is done very glibly very ironically which is you know fun to watch but it doesn't like it doesn't feel like it has like a, a heartbeat to it but the one thing that very much does feel like it has a heartbeat to it is this you know relationship between jimmy the finn and uh, danny parker yeah everything with uh pooh bear though uh, is so tied to violence it's so insane uh we learned that when somebody shorted him like eleven dollars uh <laughs> he cooked and ate their brain uh that's nuts and then we find out that he has this badger he named captain stubing and that he uses to threaten people and he actually uh, shows us how he does this by putting danny up against the cage 
and then raising the gate so the badger's little claws can get underneath and almost reach Danny. And, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, he wants him to attack him because he thinks he's going against him. Uh, Pooh Bear is nuts. And if you want to talk about the whole world this movie, I mean, why this group here is the core of this film is because, like, the ironic weirdness that the rest of the film pales in comparison to just the visceral weirdness of this character in this scene and how it can affect Danny. Yeah, so <laughs> Pooh Bear is absolutely nuts. And yeah, the, the this scene with the badger is so weird. Like, it's not just that he, like, you know, because often, like, villains in this type of movie will have some sort of, like, pet of some sort. You know, you, you often see, like, action movie villains who, like, keep tarantulas or, or they mm -hmm. keep, like, you know, rabid dogs or, you know, they have some sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and his thing is a bit more a badger is a bit more random than you know your <laughs> your average kind of frightening animal. Yeah. But so they've made that that choice to be a bit more random. It's like oh we're not gonna have like you know the kind of guard dog thing or, or we're not gonna have like some like poisonous animal. We're not gonna have like scorpions or something. We're not gonna be standard. We're gonna have a badger. Okay, that's weird. <laughs> but then they make another weird choice on top of that weird choice because the way the cage is set up, it is a cage and then it has a little gap and then it has like a wooden frontage. Mm -hmm. And then part of that wooden frontage is a little hole for for a penis. Yeah. And like th this is what this is what apparently this is Pooh Bear's MO that he uh, he uh, threatens people by getting them to stick their penis in a little hole that could be attacked by a wild badger <laughs> if they decide to tell him lies. Mm. And uh, you know, and at this point, you're just like, there is so many we and and we've just seen him glue his nose back on before this. <laughs> like there is so many weird choices going on in this scene that it's hard to keep up with. You're just like, oh, that's weird. Oh, no, that's really weird. Hang on. What the fuck is going on now? <laughs> and, you know, the thing about this one is that this weirdness here, it actually can affect Danny. And so this is weirdness that matters. Yes, this weirdness is actually part of the film. Uh, so, like, th this weirdness I can kind of get on board with mm -hmm. in, in the sense of, like, it is actually part of the story. Pooh Bear is an essential part of the story because he is like a major drug dealer so he is part of the the drug deal that is central to the the resolution of the film mm. and so yeah the, so so these these choices as, as weird as they are at least they you know you can take this there's there's scenes you can take out of this movie and they affect that they don't affect the plot at all mm -hmm. there but this is not one of them and, and it, all the Pooh Bear stuff actually matters in the end and I, even even the kind of JFK pigeon thing, I think, because it leads to that moment between uh, Danny and Jimmy the Finn, and because it kind of perfectly sets up just how, like, off the wall and just nutty the character of Pooh Bear, Pooh Bear is, like, I think that uh, that also works. Even though you don't have to have it there, but it does, like, add an extra kind of thing of, like, oh, this character is completely insane. <laughs> <laughs> well as you mentioned uh, it seems like the scene could be removed from this movie but we get a scene that actually could be removed from this movie right after that because 
Danny uh, meets up with his tweaker friend Cujo, who is played by Adam Goldberg, who is, in my opinion, just consistently enjoyable in pretty much anything, especially the Hebrew Hammer. I don't know if you ever saw the Hebrew Hammer. Yes, I did see the Hebrew Hammer. That's that's a very that's a very fun film. It's mm-hmm. one of those, I I do you know, like, it's funny how like certain things get like major releases and stuff like that, because. Mm-hmm. You know, there's like terrible, terrible spoof movies. Like all of those kind of epic movie, disaster movie, Ugh. all those kind of shit. You know, like they get like major cinema releases. Yeah, they do. Absolute garbage. <laughs> and then stuff, stuff, you know, it's stuff that's like spoofs that are like the Hebrew Hammer and like Black Dynamite get these like mm. limited releases. Like so many people have not seen them. That's true. And they're great. They're, they're like, they're they really, are. really good. And, you know, definitely that is, is something a lot more people should see. A lot more people should also see Black Dynamite. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> so uh, here we are, and Cujo has a plan. And his plan involves a big heist. And the plan for this heist is to steal Bob Hope's stool sample. This seems nuts. I mean, it's so pointless that there's no connection to the rest of the movie. In fact, we never see any of these characters ever again in this movie, right? No, we don't. So uh, these characters that we think are... Because in the beginning of the movie, we see this kind of central grouping that has Jimmy the Finn, it has Kujo, it has these other two characters, the blonde-haired guy and his kind of girlfriend... Um, which I can't remember the name of those characters, but mm-hmm. they, they say, we, we think that um, the central grouping is going to be an essential part of the, the film. Mm-hmm. But we see them kind of at the start, and then we see them in this scene, and we don't see them again. Uh, and again, this scene seems pointlessly wacky. Mm-hmm. And it's confusing as well, because like anybody who's seen a heist movie, any yeah. heist movie, mm-hmm. they always have a scene where they're uh, around a blueprint and then you generally get somebody narrating what the plan is going to be. And then that is intercut with how they imagine that mm-hmm. the uh, the heist will, will go in, in a perfect world. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, this happens, that happens, and then I do this, and then you do that, and then, and then everything. So, like, because I'm so used to heist movies, when we're inter- in the kind of intercutting scenes, I'm like, oh, this is kind of like how in Kujo's mind everything will will happen mm-hmm. but it but then you kind of learn that it's not that it seems mm-hmm. like it's either we're a mad either it is an imagination of somebody else like we're in danny's imagination of how all this shit could go wrong <laughs> or we're watching what how the heist actually took place mm. so so that's confusing Mm-hmm. But then there's also like they also make other pointlessly weird choices. Yeah. Like while Kujo is telling this weird plan, and again, we get like a wacky graphic on the on the screen that says Kujo's big heist. So like we're very much in kind of like Tarantino S territory, whatever. Yeah. Uh and then but while he's reciting what the plan is going to be, they're in a bar. And in the bar, there is an old guy doing an extremely weird version of walk on the wild side kind of talk singing it and you're just like okay i see you're making choices movie (laughs) they're both choices but what is going on right now (laughs) it's insane how disconnected the scene is from the rest of the movie i mean you can just tell me that this is actually happening from another movie and they just cut it out and dropped it here i'd buy it yeah you know 
this could be its own short film like <laughs> like because yeah it, it does not affect the plot at all like these characters are never seen again um if the imagination of what the, the how the plan if it is how the plan went down in real life mm. we presume that kujo is dead because he's <laughs> run over by an ambulance um you know it's it's kind of a it, i mean it's kind of fun mm. um because particularly uh when we're seeing the imagination of or or possibly how the house went really went down um adam goldberg is again in this very kind of early 2000 get up mm. where he's wearing these kind of goggle glasses and he's like <laughs> in all kind of camo like a big camo top and a big bit camo trousers and stuff like that so it's again the early 2000s fashion is very much on display <laughs> um it, like I, I think also there is a kind of part of this movie that's like that seems to be trying very hard, you know, with its early 2000s fashion choices mm. to, it's like straining to be like, we're done with the kids. <laughs> like, you know, like, <laughs> this is what you kids like, don't you? <laughs> you know, watching this movie and this scene in particular, I kind of wondered, do you think Bob Hope ever saw this? I mean, he died the next year, so I kind of hope he never All saw right, this. Yeah. <laughs> I'm guessing. I'm guessing not. I'm guessing not because I, I was thinking, yeah, didn't he die around this time? So mm. I'm guessing probably uh, Bob Hope aged like 99. I think he would have yeah, been when this 99. movie came out. So, um, so I, I don't think like on a Saturday night, uh, Bob, 99 year old Bob Hope uh, was watching uh, the Salt and Sea. <laughs> <laughs> I can only hope not because yo. Know, who needs this at 99 years of age to see this come on the screen? <laughs> so back to Danny's story. Uh, he's getting closer to Colette, who's been beaten by Louise Guzman. So that's not going well. And the police are pressuring, Dan pressuring Danny uh, because he, they want him to turn on Pooh Bear because he made a deal with them and they're pissed about that. So everything around Danny is going wrong at this point. Also, there's this car that's been following him who he thinks is the Colombians who are after him. It turns out... That's his former in-laws who were just worried about him. So that's all good at that part, and he's okay. Um, but then we get to find out how his wife was killed, which is obviously a key to the story. Uh, and we find out that she was caught in an ambush over what was seemingly a drug deal. I wasn't quite sure. It wasn't quite clear to me. Um, I don't know if you picked it yeah, up. Yeah, it seems it seems like it's some sort of drug deal that went wrong. I, I'm not entirely sure. Um, well, it's not like this movie to actually, be clear about something. <laughs> so it's so very unusual for this. That's a, a, a look again. We're like two things. I, this is where the budget went to. Uh, <laughs> so we get these scenes. We get these scenes kind of back to back of how the drug deal went wrong. Uh, we're assuming it's a drug deal that went wrong. And like the it's again, it's unclear like where exactly they are at. Like mm -hmm. they get directions. We're not sure if it's like some sort of motel or it's like no I'm I'm not entirely sure where it was at. But um in the scene where he meets the in-laws, uh the in-laws the, the basically his father-in-law is played by Arlie Emery mm -hmm. in, in a scene where he's he's in the film for all of like a minute and he has no dialogue 
Um, he just has like there's like one reaction shot of him, and then he's gone from the movie. And you're like, wow, <laughs> you paid Ali Emery. Okay. Um, and then again with the with the kind of motel or whatever it is, like the owner of that is played by Meatloaf. And again, he he has like maybe two or three lines of dialogue, mm. uh, and then gets shot. And, and you're like. Do you really need these actors to play these parts? Like, no. I mean, they're glorified extras, you know. Like, <laughs> Maybe it was just to convince Val Kilmer to make the movie. I don't know. He does like to work uh, with. Binge I just people. love part of this movie is just like, no, we need we need iconic people to be in every role for no apparent reason. <laughs> this is the this is the exact sort of movie that I would love to have been a fly on the wall in the set mm. because, like. Val is known for his method style and his intensity. Mm-hmm. Vincent D'Onofrio is known for his method style and his intensity. Yes. Uh, I'm pretty sure I've heard that Deborah Cara Unger is pretty method. Mm. Uh, Pierre Sarsgaard, I think, is pretty method. Everybody on this movie is like super serious, super method. You're just like the intensity levels on this set must have been off the fucking charts. <laughs> And they're all working with a first-time film director, so good luck, DJ Caruso. Uh, you're way over your head at this point. That is wild. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, well done to him for like. I mean, apparently there was like a lot of like improvisation and stuff like that. I can mm. imagine there was like a lot of B-roll in this movie. I imagine there was like probably <laughs> another movie <laughs> <laughs> worth of like improvisation. <laughs> Well, we find out that his uh, wife was murdered by some masked gunmen, and things start to really pick up at this point because uh, then Danny makes a plan to get Louise Guzman back for abusing Colette, and then he makes a plan with Bubba to do the deal with Pooh Bear. Uh, but this time there's a twist because not only is uh, Bubba not a cowboy, we've actually found out he's an FBI agent and that Danny is working with him to get those cops that murdered his wife. Uh, there's a lot going on here. There is a massive amount going on here. I think the most confusing element to me, though, was when when Danny was doing the whole thing of like um, of like transforming back into Tom Van Allen in, in the, mm. the apartment and stuff like that. Like, I guess. Uh, I had because I had seen this. I I I worked out that I actually had seen this movie once before. <laughs> I thought I hadn't, and then like during watching the movie, I was like, "Oh, I've seen this once before." Mm. And then I was like, oh, "Okay, so like you know, but, but you know, Tom Van Allen is like an undercover cop, or he's an undercover FBI agent, or whatever." Mm-hmm. And then, but no, I think the most surprising reveal in this scene is like he is just a trumpet player. He's just a jazz <laughs> trumpet player who decides to go on a one-man mission and then the f and it, you're like but like he has all but throughout the film you kind of have he has all these kind of skills that like an investigator of some sort would have mm-hmm. so you imagine that he was like high level like fbi or like or like a very experienced detective or, or something like that because he does seem to have like these deductive skills like to you know he he has like almost Sherlock Holmes types abilities at times mm. but then you're like but you're like oh he's just like a guy who plays the trumpet like how did he learn all these detectives with detective skills like did he like 
learn them while he was also taking meth? Like, <laughs> what is going on? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, absolutely, because uh, like I said, so much has to go right for this plan to work. He has to trick so many people all while high on meth. And at times that doesn't work out. I mean, there's so much double crossing and triple co- crossing going on in this film. Yeah. And he, so he was waiting for a drug deal big enough to set up the two cops. Because mm-hmm. it is revealed that the two cops are who are the people who, who murdered his wife. But then I was like... But so... Then I started thinking about the logic of the plan. Mm-hmm. And then I started thinking like... So he did he deliberately kind of get the message out to like the cartel people that he was a rat which would put him in a situation where he would have to do like a big drug deal to kind of get out of town Mm. and then that would draw the cops in because i was like surely there's an easier way to like (laughs) set up like a big drug deal rather than exposing yourself to a secondary danger mm. well well to, to exposing yourself to a third danger yeah. because you're already exposing yourself to the danger of a crazy drug dealer mm-hmm. and of corrupt cops but you're exposing yourself to a third danger of like a mexican cartel and it's just like <laughs> why pull that into the thing you know you're already in enough danger as it is yeah so like yeah the logic of the plan kind of i i could not figure it out <laughs> <laughs> And get, it gets even more ridiculous because then he goes off to Pooh Bears for the drug deal. And the whole plan is based around him sitting down in a particular seat at Pooh Bear's kitchen table. Because earlier, he taped a gun under the table when he was at Pooh Bears the first time. That is so much to rely on if you're walking into a crazy drug dealer's house where the dr- guy has all these thugs yeah. around with guns. And you have to sit at the exact chair with a gun taped underneath it. I mean, you're hoping they don't find it, obviously. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't seem like it's just been. It doesn't seem like it's just been like, like a day or two. You know, it seems like there's been like a period of time that has passed. Absolutely. Uh, since this last happened, you know, like maybe like a couple of weeks have passed mm-hmm. um, before like this big drug deal, because there's like a a little kind of taster drug deal that goes down kind of in between times. So it mm-hmm. seems like it's been a couple of weeks. Yeah. So like. Yeah, no, not only are you relying on, like, you can sit down in that seat, but also, like, that that has been taped under there for, like, maybe a couple of weeks. I, I understand that this guy's, like, high on meth all the time, but, you know, other people come into his house, other people might... <laughs> like drop some food or something and, and then and then cl- be cleaning cleaning something up and then being like hey there's like a gun taped to your table do you usually keep that you, know? <laughs> you also have to hope that the tape doesn't give way on this gun because guns are not nothing you know suddenly boom it's on the floor yeah no that's true that's true we are also relying on uh, having very strong duct tape uh. <laughs> So Danny makes his way into that chair that he had to be into. And, you know, amazingly enough, when he puts his hand under the table, the gun is there. But now there's gunplay and Pooh Bear just blows him away before the cops can show up. You know, of course, Danny is wearing a bulletproof vest. But I have to ask, what was the plan if he was shot in the head? What happens next? (laughs) Yeah, no, I I thought about that too. I was like... 
because th this is kind of one of those tropes that often happens in you know crime movies and action movies and stuff like that and yeah people always are like yeah i'm never gonna nobody it's no villain is going to shoot me in the head so <laughs> it's all good because people always get shot in the chest um, so you know it's just one of those tropes that always makes me laugh because i'm like yeah this plan falls apart if you're like um uh yeah if you're shot in the head <laughs> also uh you know we've talked a lot about like this film's cast and stuff like that mm. like the guy who like starts the gunfight um big bill the good character is called big bill and mm. it's played by the lead singer of buck cherry <laughs> like because everybody every, everybody in this film has to be a name of some sort <laughs> <laughs> It is wild. I mean, I would be surprised if there's anybody in this film who isn't famous. I mean, even actually, you know, uh, one of the people at the drug party who has no lines at the beginning, who's just laying there, is Rosario Dawson. So, like, everybody in this movie is going to be famous at some point. All right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. That's true. Oh, we, we also didn't mention in that, because we got so uh, worked up about how wild that badger scene is, Danny Trejo is in that scene. Yeah, And he is um, tortured and killed off screen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, it doesn't matter uh, how, how famous you are, you will get murdered in this film. <laughs> so Pooh Bear thinks that Danny's dead, but then uh, he decides he's going to take some of his meth because he's all freaking out. And then the cops show up, and you know everything's going to hell at this point. Uh, at that point, they kill him, and they're wearing the same ski mask they wore when they killed Danny's wife. So now it's the cops versus Danny. So the cops get the drop on Danny, and we end up with this scene where one of the cops has Danny's gun in his face. And we get what is possibly one of the most ridiculous callbacks in film history, perhaps, uh, with this flashback to the scene where Danny's being told about the gun by the kid, and he reminds him how many shots it, it holds, but Danny can't remember if it's eight or nine shots. <laughs> I mean, they definitely didn't have to do this, but it's so awesome and ridiculous. I'm very thrilled by this scene. I am also totally on board for this scene because um, it's the way it all un unravels, uh, the, 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 the way the scene kind of plays out. Because, first of all, so we don't get like a, a standard flashback. It's mm -hmm. not like we get a flashback to Danny being in the room and the, the guy telling him, and then we cut back to him having the gun in the face. Mm -hmm. We don't have a standard flashback. What we have is the guy's speech, the guy's same speech, but just his face appears within the barrel of the gun. Mm -hmm. So first of all, that's a fantastically weird choice, <laughs> and I love it. Yeah. Um, and then second of all, um, we have his thought processes intercut uh, by a very kind of Guy Ritchie style kind of thing where mm. we see the bullets, each shot, we see each shot of like the eight shots that have been shot and we get a flashback to how they were shot mm. and we, we like freeze frame and there's a number on screen next to each shot that's been shot. And like, again uh yeah it, like it derivative in some way of like being very guy, guy Ritchie style but at the same time i'm very much very fun and i'm very much on board with it so like yep. yeah totally ridiculous <laughs> but again it just cuts back to that thing of this film is kind of a mess also kind of brilliant <laughs> <laughs> 
thankfully for Danny, the gun is actually out of bullets, and Danny then overdoses the cop with Pooh Bear's drugs, so hooray for drugs? <laughs> drugs save the day, I guess? <laughs> <laughs> so at this point, Danny holds a gun to his own head, and I kind of wanted him to kill himself. I was kind of looking for that classic 70s downbeat ending where no one in this film wins. It's all just, why not? I mean, this film tries to be everything, so why not throw in some 70s as well? Throw in some dramas in there. I don't know how you felt about that. I think if he committed suicide, it would have well, it would have worked. Because, like, it kind of, to me, it thematically makes sense. Mm. In that it seems like this character is, is, is broken, has been broken by this tragedy. And it's kind of hollowed out. Mm. And his only mission in life is to get vengeance. And now he's completed his vengeance. It kind of makes sense, you know, character-wise, because he seems like a character who's so deeply traumatized. Mm. And even with the Deborah Cara Unger character, you know, can't accept love from another character, even when it's being kind of given to him, you know. Mm-hmm. And he even finds it difficult with Jimmy as well, who is, again, except kind of giving him a kind of an unconditional love as well. He, he seems uncomfortable with that. Mm. So, it, it, like, th- this is a character who seems to be unable to, to love anymore and, and is, is just empty. Mm. So, yeah, as much as it would be like a, a, a kind of kick in the nuts, kind of like really bleak, sad ending, mm-hmm. it also kind of makes sense. Mm the ending we get not so much (laughs) (laughs) well you mentioned the right character because Luis guzman shows up and he shoots danny and um you know he was with the guys who were after danny the whole time and colette actually set him up so we do get that downbeat ending we have the hero here lost to the one he thought he was falling for i didn't see this coming did you no, I kind of thought that I didn't see this coming back into the story. Hmm. Uh, as I've already mentioned, I don't think the whole Mexican cartel thing, the Mexicali boys, as they're as they're called, um, like kind of needs to be there. Mm-hmm. Like I think they could have set up the drug deal just between like Pooh Bear and the cops, and I think that could have worked, oh, yeah. and we could have uh, without this whole kind of all Danny's, you know, wanting to go into witness protection because, like, the Mexicali boys are after him or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't see it coming. Uh, I also kind of don't think it needs to be there. And in a <laughs> weird way, it makes the film... gives the film a more downbeat ending in a strange sense mm-hmm. because we get, like, an upbeat ending in that, uh, spoiler alert, Danny survives. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And then he's kind of like, and then he's, and then he's, first of all, it doesn't make sense because it seems like he's free of trauma. Mm. Like, you know, like the revenge has his freedom of trauma, uh, <laughs> you know, and he's just going to now create a new identity. But mm. then second of all, it becomes really depressing because you don't know what happens to Colette. Mm. You're like, it's, it's not addressed. It's just like, you see her dragged away by Louise Guzman and it's like, is she going to get killed? Mm. Is she now for is forever? Her, are she going to now forever be 
Louise Goodsman's fake girlfriend who like beats her up every so often. Mm -hmm. um, like what what's going to happen? You know what's going to happen to her? What's going to happen to her daughter? The film apparently does not care. No, <laughs> and uh, you know that wouldn't matter, I guess, because as you said, they leave, and the cigarette that drops hits the curtains and catches the room on fire. Uh, but this is the scene we saw at the beginning of the movie, and so everything wraps around again, and we're back to that Kilmer voiceover again. And like you mentioned before, here's Memento. We, time becomes uh, circular, and yeah. everything connects. Um, it all ties together nicely. But hey, here comes Jimmy, Jimmy the Finn, to save the day. Uh, so it was like, yeah, I, I kind of wanted to have Jimmy have an happy ending, uh, which is essentially what this is, because he's to save the love of his life. I mean, that's really what Danny is to him the love of his life and he gets to save his life but in the end Danny you know um, <laughs> Danny w should have been done <laughs> and now he keeps going and so Danny he ends up tossing his trumpet into the Sultan Sea here along with his two past identities and now he's got a new one which you know don't really quite understand at this point it's not that clear You know, it's just kind of a disappointment to me. Yeah, it, it kind of, it kind of is. Like even, like again, you know, it's just an odd ending. It's just a, it's mm -hmm. a very, it feels very tacked on, and it feels kind of like they didn't quite know where to end it. Like mm -hmm. I could have even, even again, even though it's maybe derivative, I could have even dealt with like a kind of. Like it's an ending of like a kind of Carlito's way style ending of like, mm. you know, we see him um, kind of being rolled through the through the hospital or whatever. And then maybe he gets like one last vision of his wife or something. It might have been kind of cheesy, but I think it could have still possibly worked, you know. Um, so, yeah, but this ending is just. I mean, it kind of goes with the movie, I guess, because it's like, it's weird, it's out of left field, and, mm -hmm. and it doesn't entirely hang together. Yeah, I mean, I guess it feels like maybe that because this is a studio film, that they had to save Kilmer in the end and have him survive. I think he could have, you know, died in that fire, and that would have been a really good ending to this movie, and there's more, yeah. you know, more that, you know, the studio one that, where he would survive in the end. Yeah. But... I, I, yeah, but from a storytelling point of view, like for me, it just it doesn't make any sense because, like, the way he's kind of like breezily walking down the street saying like I'm go I've got a new identity now. It's just like, oh, okay, so like you're not haunted by your dead wife anymore. Like no. you just, you just you can just like cut ties with both of those lives and be fine. You're not you're not curious about like what happened to Colette, even while you 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 know got a kind of bond with her as well as, as jimmy or you know it's just like there's just so many kind of unanswered question it leaves mm. open that wouldn't be left open if he yeah if he had died either by his own hand or in the fire or you know in that scene where you know you see the kind of we that kind of typical kind of being rolled through the hospital and that kind of overlit very white light kind of thing you know if he died in one of those three points it, 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 all of those situations would have made more sense than what we actually get. No, absolutely. Is there anything about this movie that you wanted to go over that we didn't talk about? There is one last thing that I think is curious. I wanted to ask you, how old do you think Val is in this movie? Not how old is Val, 
how old do you think he is in the film? Hmm, that's a good question. I would say maybe in his mid-30s? Yeah. I mean, because... Uh, the only reason I say that is because the in-laws are not that young. <laughs> True. And the wife has been dead, I assume, for a while now. And so it's like there has to be a passage of time here. So I'm putting maybe early 40s. He should uh, probably be a younger character for this story, um, okay. in my opinion. So, yeah, because I was looking up his age, and it was like he is in his early 40s. Hmm. Which, and, he, you know, he looks very good for his age, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, at, at this time. So, like, that's what I was thinking. The, the thing that makes it confusing for me is, and I think it's just because of the way they cast the characters, mm -hmm. is that most of the actors, like, the you know, Peter Sarsgaard, Adam Goldberg, um, and, um, like, the actress who, who plays his deceased wife, mm -hmm. Chandra West, they're all, they're all, like, you know, in real life at the time, they all would have been like 31, 32 kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, like, uh, so he's like kind of in real life, like 11 to 12 years older than, than those people. Mm. And, and the people who like the cops, like played by Doug Hutchison and Ante Lepaga and Pooh Bear played by Vincent D'Onofrio, they're all around Kilmer's age. They're all around um, like D'Onofrio and Lepaglia are the same age. And mm -hmm. like Doug Hutchison's like a year younger. Hmm. So I think, but they all kind of react to the character of Danny as if he's like much younger, like Pooh Bear a hmm. number of times calls him like a kid, you know, yeah. whatever. So it seems like he's in the age bracket of like the people that he's kind of with, like Jimmy and his, his former wife, like kind of in their early thirties. Uh, but I think the, the cops and Pooh Bear should have been aged up, so not so close in age to Val. So it could, because because I think it feels confusing in the film of like, how old is this character? Because he <laughs> he seems like close in age to these characters, but these characters are treating them like as a much younger character. Mm. So that seems a bit odd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think Danny should have been younger, uh, much younger than he appears on the screen, at least. Now, I just had one thing that had bothered me. They mentioned how uh, Pooh Bear got his name because. Winnie the Pooh stuck his nose in a pot of honey, uh, and that's why they call Pooh Bear Pooh Bear. Is that what happened? I mean, I don't remember that. I remember him being stuck like in a big pot or in a tree. I don't remember his nose getting stuck in anything. No, I don't remember either. I like, like obviously it's a long time since I've read Winnie the Pooh, but like um, you know, as as a kid, like just the mental image that comes to mind of, of it is like his hands being covered in honey and like mm. him just being. Like his his body, like his his whole upper half of his body being kind of hunched over a a, a giant honey jar. Mm -hmm. So like, yeah, that seemed weird to me as well. Again, that just seemed like something they were like, yeah, you know, it's it, it makes kind of sense, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Nobody's gonna question it at least for twenty years. <laughs> <laughs> so now that we've had our say. Uh, let's hear from the man himself. It's time for a reading from the Book of Val. Our reading today comes from Val Kilmer's memoir, I'm Your Huckleberry. There is but one mention of the Salton Sea in the book, in a chapter otherwise devoted to his relationship with a woman named J.C. Gossett. The role took the blame for its end. I disappeared into my role in the Salton Sea, and Danny Parker, Parker as a partner left a bit to be desired. He's a lethargic, depressed musician addicted to methamphetamine, oh, wow 
who moonlights as an informant for corrupt policemen after his wife is gunned down by mass thieves. If he can't beat him, join him. Might as well be the subtext of the film, as Parker spiritually sinks deeper and deeper, until his only remaining joy is a partnership with a notorious dealer who lost his nose to meth. Well, you know how much I sank into The Lizard King, and though it made for good acting, it ruined my relationship. I let the character of Parker swallow me whole, and I was miserable, desolate, without a single sparkle in my eye. In honor of the project, and in honor of art, I let JC slip away, and I had done it many times before her, but JC was perfect, and I think about her every day. Thanks be to Val. Yeah, that's that's really tough. I mean, like, yeah, yeah. I mean, you read about like a lot of like method acting and people like just you know staying in character and mm. uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's got to be very tough for for you know friends and and relatives and loved ones uh, and how do you deal with that? You know, particularly mm. when you're deep diving into like a like a dark character like this so mm. uh, it's it's just sad yeah it's very sad like you say it's just very sad well let's hear from some others come children let's explore the kills and valleys kills and valleys are the best and worst reviews of this film on rotten tomatoes the salton sea sports a 63 percent fresh rating which is not too bad glenn kenya premier was into the salton sea saying caruso sometimes descends into sub tarantino cuteness but for the most part, he makes sure the Salton Sea works the way a good noir should, keeping it tight and nasty. I don't think I can really agree with uh, Glenn Kenny on this one, although I get about the sub-Tarantino cuteness there. <laughs> Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times was moderately impressed, yeah, but echoed that. a lot of things that you said. Uh, the Salton Sea is all pieces and no coherent whole. Maybe life on meth is like that. I liked it because it's so endlessly, grotesquely inventive. Yeah, I mean, as we kind of discussed throughout, like there's a number of scenes that don't need to be there or flourishes that don't need to be there. Mm. But, uh, you know, this film has a lot of style and there's there's some moments that, you know, it's just like, you know, they stay, they're, they're going to stay in your mind. You know, mm-hmm. this like, you know, once, once you see the movie, it's like I said, I saw this movie once before. I kind of, I didn't really remember it until the kind of the trailer kind of uh, spurred my mind a little. And then watching the movie, and then as soon as we, particularly we, as soon as we get to the Pooh Bear scenes, I was like, oh yeah, I, I yeah, it's it's I rem I remember now, you know, like. Um... <laughs> well, Mick LaSalle of the San Francisco Chronicle was less enthusiastic. Don't blame Val Kilmer; he's just acting in it. Blame Tony Gaten's script filled with eccentric characters derived from other movies, more from other movies than real-life observation. And blame DJ Caruso's direction, which mixes neo-noir grimness with quirky comic touches that come out of nowhere and make no aesthetic sense. That's true. Although I I do think that I I probably go in heavier on Tony Gaten's script (laughs) than DJ Caruso's direction. Mm. Like... Yeah, some of DJ Caruso's uh, stylistic choices don't make sense, uh, but this is they're still kind of fun. Like the his stylistic, it you know, it's a film with a lot of style. It's mm-hmm. a, you know, and particularly if you are somebody who likes those kind of mid late nineties, early two thousands like crime dramas, 
um it definitely has that that visual look to it that is just something that i particularly enjoy maybe because like i grew up in that time or whatever and mm -hmm. it's um you know when i was starting to take film more seriously it's one of the kind of genres that i really got into so there's something about that that kind of visual look that i'm i'm really into it so like for me uh i quite like uh, some of the some of the left field stylistic choices that dj caruso makes in this film actually <laughs> over on amazon as of last check the unwashed masses have left us over 1900 ratings of which 78 percent are five star here's a few of them the movie was well written and directed and only an actor of val kilmer's caliber could pull it off without making it seem like another inept rehash of traffic or some other drama about a person's life turned upside down then we have perhaps the best Val Kilmer film, which I don't think I can agree with. <laughs> I also can't agree with. <laughs> yeah, that's a stretch. <laughs> I also can't agree with. I would say that this may be one of the best acted movies by Val Kilmer. <laughs> Not even in the top 10, but uh, okay. <laughs> this one said, if you like movies about drugs and don't do drugs, but you like to watch movies about drugs while you do drugs, this is a hitter. <laughs> No, I guess uh, it, it might be a little bit, you know, it might be that kind of sensory overload thing mm. of like, you know, <laughs> if you're if you're high, and then suddenly, you know, uh, a man's penis is being threatened by a wild badger, you know, like it's <laughs> it's going to freak you out. But <laughs> I, I would say so for sure. <laughs> yeah, out of the uh, those reviews, just three percent of the Amazon reviews are one star. But oddly, most of the reviews are complaints about purchases from Amazon and not the movie. Uh, you have, uh, right. I didn't order this, nor do I want it. <laughs> That's quite funny. <laughs> uh, Kilmer's acting was good. The movie was too ugly, though. Not recommended. Wish I'd spent my time and money more wisely. You have limited time in this life. Why not find better ways to spend it? Very philosophical. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, 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 that's true. That's true. <laughs> I mean, I have seen a lot worse movies than this, so like, oh, yeah. yes. <laughs> <laughs> my review stinks, but so does this movie, and it's not worth wasting my energy reviewing it properly. Counting sheep is more fun than watching this, but then again, I'm from New Zealand. What would you expect me to say? Oh, okay. Was that you? No, that that was that was not me. But that was a uh, um hilariously lethargic review of, uh, <laughs> i i can't be arsed reviewing it but also i'm going to shit on it at the same time um, so, <laughs> so we have a question to ask with or without val does val kilmer make or break this movie i think yeah i i really like val in this movie i i think he he's uh, i think he um brings a gravitas to the character i think this character is not amazingly well-rounded i can't imagine it was an amazingly well-rounded character on the page mm. and i think that val brings like a soul to it and that you can kind of visibly see that the pain the character is in and how he's haunted by his, the, the death of his wife. Mm. And I think all of those elements are brought more by Val than, than the script. Mm -hmm. So I, I would say very much that Val is, I wouldn't necessarily say he's the best part of this film. 
I think Vincent D'Onofrio is. <laughs> but like, he's a very close second, I would say. Yeah, I mean, if you didn't have someone with the presence of a Kilmer in that role, this movie floats. Mm-hmm. I mean, it floats away like a ridiculous balloon. He that's... really, he really grounds it. Yeah, that, that I think that's absolutely right. You know, because like this film is so obsessed with being edgy and cool and wacky uh, and kind of zany that you a lot of actors kind of would have kind of gone with the flow of that mm. whereas Val kind of kind of counters it and actually gives the movie some emotional heft where mm. you know there's kind of a big gaping hole in the heart of the film and like Val kind of fills that and Otherwise, yeah, this character would have just gone along with the flow of being like another zany, wacky character in this zany, wacky film. Absolutely. So now that we've discussed today's film, it's time to play a little game. And that game is called On Guard. So in today's film, we had Peter Sarsgaard portraying Jimmy the Finn. uh, But when I hear the name, all I can think about is another family uh, of uh, Nordic descent, the Swedish Skarsgårds, which includes Stellan, Bill, and Alexander. Uh, so for today's game, I'm going yeah. to give you the name of a movie, and then you're going to tell me if it's a Skarsgård or a Sarsgård movie. Got it? Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Let's do it. Let's do it. I'm not. <laughs> uh, I think I'm, I'm. I don't think I'm going to get as high a score as I got the last time I was on your show when you were quizzing <laughs> me about Van Damme and Seagal. <laughs> yeah. We we have a definite pattern here when it comes to your games. <laughs> so here we go. The first one up is Battleship. Is that a Skarsgård or a Sarsgård film? Battleship. Um, oh, I can't remember. Battle. Oh God, Battleship is a film. I, I'm sure I've I've seen it, and I I, I remember being like kind of annoyed by it because it's like made in a kind of Michael Bay light style. Mm. But um, oh, who is in that film? God, I have no memory of that film other than being annoyed by it. <laughs> I'm going to say Sarsgaard. I'm going to say Sarsgaard. You would be incorrect. That was oh no, it's a scar. <laughs> that was oh, okay. Alexander Skarsgård. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so how about Garden State? Garden State. Wow. Films that I've seen that I can't really remember. Uh the Zach Braff film. Um, mm-hmm. Right. So that's early two thousands. So yeah. Alexander, Alexander is like the earliest thing I remember of him in is like Zoolander. Mm. So, no, I'm going to say Sarsgaard. I'm going to say Sarsgaard again. <laughs> and you are correct. It is a Sarsgaard. <laughs> <laughs> How about Thor? Thor. Thor. Oh, Thor, the Marvel movie. All right, that's Stellan Skarsgård. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is a Skarsgård movie. <laughs> Sticking with the comic book movies, we have Green Lantern. How about Green Lantern? Green Lantern. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I'm going to say Skarsgård again. Three for three in a row there. You are correct. (laughs) (laughs) Let's try Boys Don't Cry. Boys Don't Cry. Yep. Wow. It's a long time since I've seen that. Yeah. (laughs) Same here. Boys Don't Cry. 
So, if it is Skarsgård, it can only be Stellan because, like, I think it's like too early for any of the younger Skarsgårds. I mean, maybe like, so. Maybe so. I'll say Sarsgard. Correct. Sarsgard. <laughs> <laughs> now let's go back to action with The Legend of Tarzan. Oh, that's Alexander Skarsgard looking like an absolute <laughs> statue of a man. <laughs> yes, it is Alexander Skarsgard. You are correct. How about Melancholia? Melancholia. Oh, I, I've I've seen that. Um, yeah, no, that's Alexander Skarsgård. He's like um, Kristen Dunst's husband, I think, or something. You are correct, but there's also Stellan Skarsgård oh, no. in there. <laughs> so they're both. Oh married. yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, Stellan Skarsgård too. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because it's directed by Lars von Trier, so he's got to get all the Danish actors in. <laughs> How about Mamma Mia? Mama Mia. Oh, I tell you what. Um, although I don't like the movie, I did watch this once with my mum, so I know that it's Stellan Skarsgård. <laughs> Stellan Skarsgård, indeed. You are really rolling now. <laughs> so how about Jackie? Sorry, I didn't hear that one. That would be Jackie. Jackie. Yeah, the Natalie Portman biopic. Oh, yeah, yeah, we're, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um... I'm going to say Sarsgaard. And you would be correct. And now we're down to the final question, Jarhead. Jarhead. Oh, God. Blimey. I've only seen that movie once. Uh, Jake Gyllenhaal. Um, I'm going to say Skarsgaard. Oh, wrong. Sarsgaard. You are oh, not Sarsgaard. correct. Ah, <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> that was better than I thought it was going to be, actually, to be honest. It was very I impressive. I think I was 8 for 10 the last time, too. So. <laughs> I think you were, yeah. So that's it for this episode of Kilmer Cast. I'd like to thank you for joining me to chat about this masterpiece. I guess you could say masterpiece, right? That's a that's a funny word. <laughs> Do you have anything you'd like to plug? Oh uh, yeah. Um. So I've got uh, New Horror Express, which mm -hmm. is a fortnightly horror interview show where I talk to horror film directors, horror novelists, horror screenwriters, horror actors, all, all sorts of it. Generally, kind of indie horror people. Um, we have had uh, some more famous people as well. I, I once talked to Lloyd Kaufman <laughs> of, of trauma fame. Um, uh, so so yeah yeah. There's there's loads of episodes. I, I've done like um, about 120 interviews. Wow. Um, but also that that has um, a, a sub series, a kind of bonus series. It's the guilty pleasure series where mm -hmm. I look at uh, guilty pleasure movies mm. of the horror in the 21st century um i've done about yeah 23 or 24 of them so yeah you can you can check them out all at newhorrorexpress.com and also like wherever you listen to podcasts apple mm -hmm. Podcasts, spotify stitcher whatever and also i've got all 90s action all the time it's a more sporadic podcast we did it very consistently last year but now it's just like you get an episode like once every few months and uh, we recently mm -hmm. did con air like i said mm -hmm. we're doing uh, a short 
Bond miniseries in August. Yeah. Uh, I think we'll probably do a Christmas episode and then we're going to do yeah, kind of sporadic episodes <laughs> in 2023. So, I, and again, wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, you know, all the platforms. <laughs> so, then <laughs> <and> that's it. <laughs> well, they say good things come to those who wait, so they can wait for your next episode. In our next episode, <laughs> we'll be watching another killer film that we've yet to cover, but which one is it? To be determined. In the meanwhile, please email any thoughts questions comments to kilmercast at gmail.com and follow the show on twitter at kilmercast for myself and my guest scott murphy thank you for listening and remember to keep it kilmer hey!